You notice in Kings, we don't get a lot of the glory, happy chapters. <laughs> what has man set itself up for, huh? I want to go back before uh, asking a question to kick us off and get our brains rolling to chapter 13 for last week. Just the last uh, last two verses. 33 and 34. Just reminding us of what's really setting up or what set up chapter 14 and also 15 and 16, because we're going to see this. We're going to fly through some kings for a couple chapters. And in 17, Elijah is finally going to um, begin to do some some works and get the people right. But here's what it said back in 13 when we ended last week. It said, even after this, and remember this now, that even after this, what is the this? The this is all the miracles that had taken place. You know, the, the hand being withered when he raised it up, the hand being healed right afterwards, the, the movement of God cracking the... Um, the altar, and I mean, just just so many things that God had, had cut a light on repeatedly for him. And it says, even after all this, I wonder how often God looks at us sometimes, and there's a line of even after this, that we're still knuckleheads and still messing up. Uh, Jeroboam did not repent of his evil way. Look, that's all God's looking for is repentance. He's not looking for perfection. But even after all this, he did not repent from his evil way, but again, made priests from the high places. So he made his own, his own, his own worship leaders and his own religious leaders from the ranks of the regular people, not the way God had ordained it. Uh, he ordained, since God wasn't ordained, whoever so deprived it. And they became priests of the high places. This was the sin that caused the house of Jeroboam to be cut off and obliterate, yeah, taken away from the place of the earth. Here's my question. You see the title on the screen for today. Obedience determines the outcome. I think we, we would say that would be true in all areas of life, correct? Your obedience determines the outcome, right? If you, you work hard, you get a paycheck at the end of the week, and you can buy food to eat. You don't work, you don't get a paycheck, and you may not have food to eat. Uh, you know, Scripture says that too, in case you're thinking, oh, that sounds like a horror. No, Scripture says idle hands go hungry. Uh, so, you know, it's true. But obedience determines the outcome. If we're, we're obedient, we turn out. Now, when you think about this in a religious view or, or a view in our relationship with God, it takes a whole deeper Kind of meaning. So, so just bounce around the room. What does obedience really mean? If you were to define obedience, this is where you respond. You mamas ought to have a good answer. Maybe your daddy's got a good answer. Doing the word. There we go. So not just reading it, doing it. Do what you were taught. All right. I like it. I like it. Walk the walk. Follow the rules. Who said that? That was a mama answer, yeah. Just want you to follow the rules. Follow directions. Trust in his word. Well, I would say to, to trust in his word would then give us the ability to follow the rules and the direction. Because I think sometimes, we said this last week about fear. Sometimes it's the fear that stops us from walking where we're supposed to walk and doing what we're supposed to do. So if we have that trust... And I think that trust comes. See, I, I'm a visual, and I, and I guess that's why God knows that. That's why He gives us so many uh, illustrations in, in Scripture. Um, you know, so so when Abby said, "Daddy taught us what to do," and we do it, Daddy taught us to do that. That was me. I'm like, yeah. So instantly, I'm picturing like all the things my daddy had taught me to do, and how I learned to to be able to do them. And then you apply that, you know, in a relationship with with Abba Father, and, and then it takes a whole other meaning. But that that develops the trust to me. If Daddy did, if Abba didn't walk me through, now, now what I mean by walking through, you could go back to maybe God had a whole a bigger purpose than just a, a welcome and announcements for Isaiah 46. 
You go back to, to like Isaiah 46, the, the word we read at the very beginning, and you're reminded of what God's done. So you take, take somebody like David, who we, we just looked at not too long ago. When David stood up to take on Goliath, he remembered what daddy, Abba, not, not his earthly daddy, but Abba had already done with him. Because what did he tell Goliath? Man, I done killed a bear. I done killed a lion. Like, I done did some cool things because the Lord has trained me in what to do. And because he's trained me in what to do, I'm not afraid to come up against you. Right? So when, when, when daddy has walked, when Abba has walked us through the way, man, then the trust develops, the obedient, the, the follow directions obedience, and then the, uh, the directions gets a whole lot, whole lot easier, right? So it's not just knowing what to do, it's actually doing it. Right? So, so when we think of obedience, we need to be reminded of that because it's our obedience that determines the outcome. So knowing right and wrong isn't enough. It's actually following through and doing things the right way. And this works with all areas of life, especially when we're talking about a relationship with God and, and, and spiritually speaking, because great punishment obviously just came in, in this chapter and will continue to come because of a lack of obedience. But some of us wonder, like, sometimes why are our kids are the way they are, why our marriages are the way they are, why work is the way it is, why we have no peace, why our life is a wreck, why we're always stressed out, why there's, there's just so much stress and anxiety. And it's because you're not doing it the way the Father has set it up for you to do. I mean, since the very beginning, he walked, he, he held his children's hand. And walk through this thing and said, this is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to do. And this is how you're also going to rest. This is how you're also going to take time to be with me. This is also how you're going to to, to, to live this way. And this is how you're going to train up the next generation. And, and all those lessons are set up. So we shouldn't be surprised when life's not going the way we want it, when we're not being obedient. All right, so let's look at this thing. Here's where it really messed up. I'm going to jump straight into points. So that was your welcome and, uh, and warm up, right? Number one is this. Jeroboam's, by the way, this is kind of the end of the Bowen brothers. Jer- Jeroboam's number one mistake, I think. He seeks God only when he wants something. That sound familiar? He seeks God only when he wants something. I mean, think about this through, through just a very short amount of chapters and information we know on this guy. And today, today we got Jeroboam. He's seeking to know. Here's what he says. He wants to know the truth about his son. Now, now let's, let's just pause and stay on the same point, but pause for a minute. Does he really want the truth about his son? No, he want, he doesn't even want the right answer. He wants his answer. Right? He doesn't want the truth about his son. The truth about his son is your son's about to die. And he's going to die because you're an idiot. Because you led the people and you led the nation around. Matter of fact, your son, I don't want to jump in, in, in one of the other points, but, but your son's the only thing in your family I like. Think about that. He's looking at a baby and he literally says, the only good I see in your entire lineage is that little baby. I mean, that, that's, that's how God's throwing this. This out on. So he doesn't want the truth. He wants what he wants. And we see that by something else he does as we go through, through this thing. But he's only seeking God when he wants something. His son is sick and he wants his son healed. Now, in all reality, guys, this isn't necessarily a bad thing when, when, when we, you know, seek something and, and want something from God. But when that's the only time we seek God, that's a problem. He needed an answer. He needed some sort of, of assurance, you could say. Look at verse 2. Verse two, he says exactly what's going on and, and the assurance. So, so he's so sure on this thing. He says, I want you to go. Now, now we need to understand a big lesson here too. I want you to go to that prophet that had spoken good to me that one time. Do we remember who this prophet was? You know, for us, it was only last week or the week before. This is the prophet that told him, you're going to be a king. You're not only going to be a king. You're going to be a king of, of, of the majority. Like 10 tribes are going to be under you. 
Don't we always want to go back to somebody who gave us good news when we need some good news? Now, now because we've read the whole chapter, I give you a, a, a mini point that comes up a, a, a little later. If you're talking to a truth speaking person, they're not always going to be able to give you the good news. They're just going to be able to give you the right news. So don't be surprised when you go to somebody who had given you good news once before and they got to deliver some bad news the next time or some honest news or some rebuke. Now, I'm not telling you not to pursue that person. I think this is the only good thing the guy does in the whole chapter. He knows. See, if it was me, by the way, I guess this is where I'm a little crueler and and I'm glad his his wife is a little nicer than me. If it had been me and he just said, baby, you need to dress up, pretend to be somebody you're not and go down there and talk to that prophet that gave me good news at one time. I would have looked him straight now and be like, why don't you go talk to your little golden calves? Why don't you go call on your little priest who you made up yourself and let them give you the news that you're wanting to receive? This guy knows everything he's developed has been fake the entire time. Like I said, it's the only good thing he gets in the whole chapter. He knows all his man-made stuff has been fake and horrible and ritual, and and that's it. So he says, why don't you go to the the last truth speaker, the last right person we spoke with. And get some news from him. He has, this is how he words it in verse 2. He has the word of God. We can find out from him the answer to my son's illness. False beliefs don't help when you've got a real need. We get that? False beliefs don't help none when you've got a real need. He knew like them idols and that fake priest and, and all that stuff wasn't going to be able to do nothing for him because he's got a real need. And when you've got a real need, the fake stuff ain't going to cut it. The little feel-good emotions ain't not going to cut it. The little happy song, it ain't going to cut it. Right? The feel-good sermon ain't going to do it. Which leads us to point number two. So not only does he seek God when he wants something, he seeks God on his own terms. God, God is not a God who's going to go down to your terms, okay? When, when we look at this, and we, and we go back to this, he says from chapter 11, I, I can't be the one going. You need to go and you need you need to just here's the sad thing, guys. Here, here's the, the saddest part of that. I told you the only good thing is, is that he did at least acknowledge that there's one man of God and it wasn't his. The saddest part of this is he knows how wrong he's been, yet he still chooses to stay in it. Is that not true by what by his response? He knows how evil he's been. He said, I can't even be the one to go. Like it's like a kid who knows they've done wrong and they try to get one of their siblings to go over to mom and dad. I can't be the one to go tell mom I broke that because, you know, then she'll slap me. But if you go, it gives me about a 30 second head start before mom comes chasing after me. Right. I mean, this is exactly what he's doing. He goes, oh, I can't even be the one to go. And here's another thing that really blows my mind and gets me. So so this is maybe more for us men than anybody else. And maybe you women can elbow your man sitting beside you or whatever. He sends his wife to do in all honesty what he ought to be doing. Yeah. Say it again. The people on camera got you that time. That was good. Right? Think about this, though. Who is called to be the spiritual leader of the household? The man. Who is called to acknowledge when something needs to be addressed? Who's the one that when something ain't going the way it's supposed to go, whether it was his fault or not? Now, notice this is his fault. So if he would have just straightened up right now. See, God's got so much grace over these Bowen brothers, it blows my mind when you really step back and look at it. But who's the one he sends to go talk to the prophet of God? His woman. You know, I speak to people all the time about asking questions. And not, not to get us off on that or anything like this, but always asking questions about like women in the church and this and that and all that. And, and my answer is always easy. I don't even have to answer it from a biblical 
a biblical idea of a verse? Because the answer is real simple for us until we get this part right. Women are going to have to continue to step up and fill the roles until the men start doing what the men are supposed to be doing. You notice I could argue and you can't argue against that. And I didn't even have to use a verse on, on, on where it gets any deeper than that. Right. Women have called have had to step up. Because men have not. This woman has to go talk to this guy about her, her dying kid, by the way. I'm thinking as a man, I, I, I can't even imagine the pain and the agony and all that as any parent. But I'm thinking as a man, like I know my woman's emotions can take way more or, or can can break way faster than mine. Typically, typically, not just on average. So I'm thinking as a man, I need to man up and, and, and not send her. Could you imagine her having to go do this? Can you imagine her as she sits before this guy and he's got to speak truth? It ain't going to be what they want. And he's got to say, your baby's going to die. The heartbreak? And then she's got to walk back by herself because he didn't even go with her and give this news to the king. I mean, it's just an ugly situation, man. Trying to do things on his own terms. It, it gets even worse than this. Look at verse 3. So not only do we have this, this put on a mask thing and cover up thing going on. Verse 3, it says, why don't you take him some gifts? He's probably a guy like Pastor Philip, and, and he'd love to have a bowl of chili, so, 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 some pumpkin bread, a little pecan pie. He even gets deeper. He tells not, no, don't just bring bread and cake. He said, bring some honey on it because he likes his sweets. You know what I'm saying? What, what's the purpose behind that? Bribing. I want to make sure we get it because we read over it and we're like, oh, he's just showing honor. No, he's showing no honor and respect. Why else would you give him the gift before he gives you the answer? Right, he's sucking up. He goes, I- I'm going to fatten you up and I'm going to get you happy. And when you're real happy, then I'm going to ask you the question, so what's going to happen to our kid? Right? I mean, this is, this is exactly what's going on here. And this is the foolishness of man. And here's, here's what kind of cracks me up on the whole situation. He sends his wife disguised as somebody else to a guy he fully believes knows the future. Now, how's the guy who knows the future... Not know who's coming at his door and knocking because he's wearing a mask. Is that not a funny scene to, re- to really think about? And here's the irony that goes behind. I love how God sets this whole thing up anyway, right? The irony is that this guy's already blind. That's it. He couldn't see because he was uh, aged got him, right? So it didn't even matter whether the wife had disguised herself or not. This guy couldn't see. Do we not do some useless stuff to try to get our agenda made? I mean, you, you can literally write down just a point. Stop doing useless stuff. I mean, all this preparation, all this outfit, all this cover up, all this worry about whether he's going to recognize you or not. It was all useless. The guy's already blind, right? And all the prophet heard was the footsteps at the door. She doesn't even get it. doesn't even say that she gets to knock. So I don't even think she knocked. It's not like she knocked. Hey, I'm here. We, we, matter of fact, we'll point in a minute. We don't even hear her say anything the entire time. She's there, right? Footsteps at the door, and he says, hey, come on in, wife of Jeroboam. Could you imagine her? She's like, the mask wasn't good enough. The video camera he had at the door saw me. Right? No, he didn't have no video camera at the door. Come on, man. They don't have tennis shoes, right? But, but, but that's where she's at. She's like, oh, he's got me. And here's what he says. Now, I got to break this verse down. This is still in verse 6. I got to break this verse down in the Hebrew for you because the meaning is phenomenal, okay? And some translations have it this way. So verse 6. When he heard the sound of the foot entering the door, he said, come in, wife of Jeroboam, why are you disguised? I have bad news for you. Now, you break that, that little last section down about I have bad news for you. Here's what it literally says. 
I have been sent to you with bad news. So some of your translations may have that. Some of them don't. Why is that so important? Why, why is that so awesome? You got the scene, right? What, what's the scene? This lady's been sent by her husband to go to him, right? So she thinks she, she's got a word from her husband. You go to him. So she thinks she's the messenger. I am going to him. But when she gets there, he says, you only get it if you break it down right. He says, I have been sent to you. Now, is God not absolutely amazing? The guy's blind, so he probably could. He didn't have, he didn't have Luke or none of these fancy dogs, right? So, so he couldn't have made it to her. So what's God do? God says, you know what? I'm going to send the message through you to them, but I'm going to, I'm going to bring her all the way to the door so that you don't have to go nowhere. And I, and I just wonder when she, cause she would have caught it. See, when we, we read it, we don't really catch it because there's so many translations. I guarantee she would have caught standing at the door. Why are you pretending to be somebody you're not? She'd have caught that. Oh man, you know, so I am. And then I guarantee the next line would have blew her socks off when he said, I've been sent to give you a message. You were sent to give, I, no, I'm sent. Hey, you messed up. I'm sent to. No, no, God will use some crazy things in your life to get a message to you. Am I right? And then that's what's really going on right here. God will you. I wrote it down this way, right? I quoted it. God will use some stuff to get his word to you. Now, I don't know what your stuff is. Some of your stuff is tragedy. Some of your stuff is grief. Some of it's heartache. Some of it's good stuff. But God will use some stuff to get his word to you, whatever it is. So God is using some stuff to, to get this to this lady who, who might I add, did not. He didn't need to hear her voice. He didn't need to hear her question. He didn't need to hear anything. She doesn't speak the entire time, at least from what's recorded for us. And he says this, I can see because I have a revelation from God. Our effort to try to hide from God is so few. And we do it so often. Now, now take this even further than just going to this message. We put on our mask to come to church. We put on our mask to go to work. We put on our mask in our marriages. We, I think we even put on our mask sometimes when, when, we're, when we're studying the Bible and talking. Do we not? Now, what I mean by that is we, we try to fool God by pretending. And, and we do this both ways. And sometimes, as sad as it is, I'm, I'm not realizing it till now, how sinful it gets on both sides. So sometimes we do it to hide the true break and, and hurt that's inside. You don't want nobody to see it, so you put on a mask. God says, why would you wear a mask when you're coming to my house where I'm, I'm the healer of the hurt? Right? But 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 here's what I realized. Sometimes we, we, we do it the other way, too. Now, this isn't as often. But you ever been in a moment where you're talking to somebody who you know is broke, but like you got this awesome thing that God did, right? Like, like, like God just, he showed up, showed out and it's been phenomenal, but you're talking to somebody who's like in a low spot. So you kind of undercut, you undercut the goodness of what God has done in your life. Have you been there? Can you, can you relate with what I'm saying? Is that not wearing a mask in a negative way also? How dare we undercut what God did? When, when what he did may be what that person needed to get through what they're going through. You, you see what I'm saying about what we do? We try to undercut it because we think we know emotions better than God. Who invented them? Who made us? Who crafted us? Who developed us from the, from the ground up? God did. So don't you think he knows exactly what we need? He doesn't need that, that hurting person doesn't need what we think they need. They need what God knows they need. So, so how dare we try to put on a mask even on the goodness of God and for the sake of us trying to do things. See, that's where we mess up something. We think we can do the right way, our way, when the right way is only God's way. And that's what we do sometimes. We put these masks on. The, the testimonies, that's why I love them. 
Man, there'd be some ugly stuff going on in here on Wednesday nights. I'm telling you right now. Right? Some stuff you never thought you would hear. But it's good. It's good. Because what you went through brings forth victory to somebody else. Or maybe yourself. Maybe you're getting ready to go back in to the decline of the roller coaster ride and you need to be reminded. Oh, God didn't got me out of this once. He brought me back up to the top. But you know, right? We need to be reminded of that. So, so, so here's where we go. No, knowing that this, this thing is we behave like God doesn't even know. Verse five, he says this. This is what I love. God reveals everything to the, to the prophet. Who's coming? What they want? Why they're there? And how it's going to play out. He reveals everything. God reveals everything if we would just listen. And here's the truth. We don't have to hide from God. We don't have to cover up. Even though this prophet was blind, he still sees because God has revealed it to him. She didn't have to come hiding. She could have come exactly how she was. She could have come broken. I just wonder how different the story would have been if she became broken. I wonder how different the story would have been if somehow she would have got word back to that, that king and, and he would have been broken. It's not the end of the story until it's the end of the story. Verse or number three. Third point, he seeks God only to fix his problems. That I didn't, I tried to try to not jump it. I, I may have shared a little bit of it at the very beginning. He's only seeking this saying right now. The king only seeks God when he's in trouble. The only other time he seeks God is when his hand withers from chapter 13. Remember, he points, his hand is withered, paralyzed, whatever word you want to use. And he's like, Oh, I need your God to heal me. The only time he's seeking God is when he needs God to fix his problems. Now, again, that's not necessarily this this terrible thing, but the only time we see God is for fixing our problems. Then we're looking and we're observing God for the wrong reason and the wrong stuff, right? That's self-serving. Jeroboam shows no regard for the word of the Lord in all other occasions of his life. And that's what we do. We use God's word when it benefits us. You ever seen people to grab a verse to win an argument? Huh? We'll we, we grab this verse. It ain't got nothing to do. With what we're talking about, my, my favorite one, just because we all know and it's an easy illustration, my favorite one, not the guy can't give us strength and everything, by the way, but my favorite is when all the bodybuilders pull up Philippians 4.13. Yeah, you know, working out and they flexing all hard and they got it, they got it on a Philippians 4. I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. You know where Paul was when he wrote that? Do you know what Paul was talking about when he wrote that? I just want to ask him sometime. Because I guarantee he wasn't lifting no weights in the jail cell. The chain that was strapped to him probably weighed a lot. And the only reason he's saying the Lord gives me the strength to get through everything is because he's emotionally and physically and spiritually and health-wise broken. So maybe it's a good verse to get tattooed on your cast, but it's probably not a a good tattoo to get tattooed on your weightlifting body, okay? It's totally opposite things, but we take that verse. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand God can give you strength to pick stuff up, sure, whatever, right? But we take the verse out of context. We do it all the time with so many verses. All the time. We make God's word say what we wanted to say so it benefits us. That's a lack of obedience. A lack of obedience is when you think you can change the word of God. This guy actually despises the word of God in all honesty. Because he directly rejects it this entire time. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, You behave more wickedly than all who were before you. In order to anger me, you proceeded to make for yourself other gods and cast images but you have flung me behind your back. Can you imagine sitting before? Again, I'm going with Abby's illustration just because it's so great. Like I always thought when I got past the age of like getting that spanking and that beating, like it was going to be great. Like, yeah, I don't get spankings. I don't get beatings. Anymore. I'd rather get beat than get some of the talking tunes I've had as a younger adult. Even as an adult, to be honest with you, right? 
Like, can we just go back to the beatings again? Because those got over in a couple minutes and it was gone. Those words, man, they stay in there forever. But can you imagine Abba? Now, I'm talking about my daddy talking to me here on earth. But can you imagine Abba, father, looking at you and be like, you're the worst. <laughs> wow. Thanks, dad. Right? I mean, <laughs> he doesn't sugarcoat it any at this point. God's finally had enough. We, we ask all the time. You got two different people, by the way. You always got people like, I can't believe God is so mean. Right? When he's like pouring grace on this guy constantly. Like so many chances for years to get right. Then you got the other side and you're like, I can't believe he just wouldn't smack that guy in the very beginning. But then when he smacks the guy, you're like, I can't believe God smacked him like that. Right? Some of you mamas get like that. Just, just to pick on you because it's fun, right? So Some of you mamas be like, I just wish he would stand up and, and be a man and take over for the children and all this. He finally stands up and you're like, no, not my baby. <laughs> Come on, man, you don't get it both ways, right? God looks at it and says, you're, you're, you've done more evil than anyone else. Now, let's look at who's before this guy just in the in the reign of kings, right? David, well, we know he's done more evil than David. David was great, okay? But but what about Saul? Saul, bad man, bad king. All right, probably one of, one of the, the kickstarters of all evil. People picked him because they wanted their selection, not God's selection, so he set up bad for me. And Solomon, great king, but a bad man. Okay, and God gets to this guy who's next and he says, you're the worst of all of them. So bad, in fact, if you if you if you get through the the rest of Kings and then the Chronicles, this guy's so bad. about He's the measuring stick that all other kings are measured against. I mean, there's literally verses that compare other kings to this guy in our future. Like, well, you're not as bad as Jeroboam. (laughs) You're like, hold on. Now, what does that really mean? You said Jeroboam was the worst. Oh, you know, so he's the measure stick of everything right here. Ouch, man. And then, then this phrase right here, right? This is how God views it. God looks at him and says, you cast me behind your back. Now, what is that to us? Like, okay, like he turned his back to God, right? Ah, it gets a little deeper, man. You look in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 23, verse 35, and it says this, because you forgot me and cast me behind your back, therefore you shall bear the penalty of your lewdness. Oh, so God, like he's getting a little harsher with this phrase, of behind your back. But but what else could it mean? Well, if you go to Isaiah chapter 38, it's the same figure of speech that God uses to describe our forgiveness of sins. So in that case, you're talking about God and, and, and you know, I'll use the word forget, but please understand God does. God can't literally forget stuff. OK, he chooses not to remember is a better way to look at it. But, but, but when God uses this in Isaiah chapter 38, verse 17, it's good news because it's talking about God's treatment of our sin. Like I cast it behind my Behind my back, it's behind me. I'm choosing not to focus on that when I look at you, right? But but we're talking about a tragedy like describing somebody's opinion and somebody's treatment of God. How bad must this feel to God, right? Like God's using this phrase of, of me being cast behind your back. Since meeting Jeroboam in chapter 11, this has been his manner. He hasn't taken God's word to heart once. Even when he does, it's just for selfish gains. He wants God only for the emergencies. Right. Which leads us, I guess, to, to another another wording of the point. Number four, he seeks God only for himself. He looks at God as only this insurance policy. Right. Only his his divine paramedic. We should be seeking God for who he is, not just what we want. That's why that, 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 that second song was so, so awesome and so on point. Seeking God for who he is, not just what he can want. We, we should honor God for who he is, not what we can get out of him. Right. We, we joke sometimes about like having this rich family member because we can get something out of them. God's not like that. We should be honoring God for who he is, right? Jesus puts it this way. 
just to make sure we understand this is all over the Bible from, from beginning to end. He turned to the crowd that was following him. Now, man, I, I'm be honest with y'all. Like Jesus, some of the stuff he says, when you really break it down, like it really blows my mind. I, I've told you before, like Jesus, I think would have been the worst army recruiter in the history of, of recruiting just because of his blunt honesty. Or, I mean, think about what he told you. I don't have a place to lay my head. Like you're not going to have a place to sleep if you follow me. Oh, yeah, sign me up. Sounds great, right? <laughs> Here's what he's got a crowd following him. You're like, in my mind, if, if you don't know the end of the story, you're reading the book of John and you're like, yes, like things are finally turning around. It's going to be great. He's finally got the, I'm on the crowd, right? Because that's my messed up human, earthly, divine idea going on. He's finally got the crowd following him and he looks back at the crowd, John chapter 6, verse 26, and he says this, you guys are only following me because you ate the loaves and you've had your fill. No, Jesus, don't send them away yet. Right? He looks at me and blatant honesty goes, I know you're only following me because of what you can get out of me. Now, that, that, that's blatant honesty, right? Could you imagine like your, your spouse or your children having that kind of relationship with you? And you got to look at them and tell them, I know you're only following me because of what you can get. Right? I know you're only here because of what you can get out of it. And here's the illustration that I love. I'm big on illustrations. Illustration I love. We look at God like he's a waiter. Now, how many of you know your waiter personally? I'm not talking about some of you to go to the same restaurant every Saturday, every Sunday after church in order to say thing. How many of you really go to a restaurant to know your waiter? None of you? Yeah, me neither. What do you go to a restaurant for to meet your waiter with? What do you call the waiter for? Thank you. A 12-year-old gets it. You adults aren't getting it. That's, that's bothersome. Okay? Maybe we need to look up the definition of waiter instead of just obedience. I'm going to talk to Paxton now. Paxton, when you get to the restaurant and you call your waiter, what's the first thing you tell him? Man knows how to go at a restaurant, right? I want this. If we're at mommy's restaurants, what's the next thing we tell them? We want queso and we want chips because heaven forbid we go anywhere other than a Mexican restaurant for lunch or dinner, right? So we got that going. The man knows his order. Waiter comes back again. What do you tell him? What food you want? If you're like me and you can't even speak English, if you're at a Mexican restaurant, you generally point to the word, right? <laughs> Or you just butcher it and be like, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I ordered, I, I know I'm going to say it wrong, so I, well, Abby be the only one who really knows. And, and my friends in Puerto Rico watching online, right? I, I always order a Hermica if we go to um, El Jalapeno's because they're the only place that has it. And, and finally, I always say it that way. And everybody knows what to bring me, right? It's it's a cranberry tea kind of thing for those that don't know. Finally, last, or two Sundays ago, the guy goes, you want a what? I said, I want a Hermica. I ordered it every time I'm here. You want a what? And finally, my wife says, he wants a... Say it the right way. Oh, so you're not going to say it any different. There's my wife. But I'm sorry. You stay in your corner in your box back there. Me and Abby are talking. Abby, how would you have ordered it? Say, there we go. Now, what I said sounded just like what she said, didn't it? Huh? Come on, be with me, American, you Southern Americans, right? See? So so here's what we do. Now, you got it just from a 12-year-old just now. We call the waiter over we want to drink. We call her over because we want some queso and chips. We call her, call him over because we, we want something to eat. And even if we can't say it, we just point to the thing on the menu and tell him, this is what I want. Why do we view God that way? Now, the sad part is, with, with this waiter, we never get his name. It's never, hey, how are you today? It's never, 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 what's going on? What can I do for you? What can you do for me? Nothing like this. The waiter is only important in getting what I want. And that's the way we view God. Jeroboam, you could basically say it this way. Jeroboam is using God to meet his needs. 
He seeks God not for who he is, which means there's no relationship in it. He only seeks God for what he can get out of him. I mean, listen to this. Talk about rebuke. God's message back to him. I don't want to just read nine. He says, you go and tell Jeroboam, this is what Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel says. I raised you up. He's reminding him. It's always bad when God reminds you, right? You ever had your mom and dad remind you? Like, this is how I trained you. This is what I've given you. Maybe you've heard the phrase, I've given you life and I can take it. Right? They always remind you. Always remind you what they can give you, right? I raised you up from among the people. I made you the leader over the people. I tore the kingdom away from the house of David and I gave it to you. But you... You haven't been like my servant, David. You haven't kept my commands. You haven't followed me with his heart. You're only doing what is right. You haven't done what is right in my eyes. You've done more evil than all those that live before you. And you provoke me to anger. And you thrust me behind your back. Because of this, the Lord recounted all this stuff. I, 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 I. And he even reminds him of what he's done in this thing. So this is a two-part kind of thing. You provoke me to anger. You thrust me behind your back. Jeroboam's offense is a sin against God's grace. Now, now you and I, we can sit there and be like, yeah, but I hadn't really been as blessed as much as, as this guy. Do you realize how blessed you are just for being born in this country? I'm not being serious. Do you realize how blessed you are just to have a roof over your head at night? I mean, I don't, I don't I had never broken down the numbers, but they, they say just living here makes you better than 80% of the world as far as financially and, 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 and stuff. Now, stuff ain't everything, and that's what gets us in some trouble, I think. That's why sometimes I wonder if it's harder for us in this country. And, and, and other countries that are financially successful, if it's harder for us to trust and rely on God fully. Because we got so much stuff getting in the way. We don't trust God because we can trust stuff. We don't follow the direction because there's another direction. Right? That's what gets us in some, some of the biggest troubles. And he goes to him, and he treats him this way. And here's what God says, verse 10 and 11. Because of this, I'm going to bring disaster on your house. I'm going to cut off your bone. I'm, I'm going to cut off every, every male. Who's over there? Slave and free. So there's no, no worry, no, no worry about who's not going to make it right. I'm going to burn up the house as one who burns dung. Do you hear what God is saying? God's saying, you guys have made me so mad. I'm going to burn you up like, like you would be burning up poop to get rid of it. That's what we just got compared to when we disobey God this way, right? Until it's all gone. Verse 11, the dogs will eat those that belong and die in the city and the birds of the air will feed on those that die in the country. Well, you wanted God's wrath, and now you got it. You want to know what would happen if you push God's grace to the last minute? Now you've got it. He's so sick, he's going to burn you up like we burn up poo to get rid of it. And, and, and when that's all said and done and whatever's not burned up, the dogs are going to come and devour what was left of the city. And those of you who thought you were in the country too far away, the birds are going to come and finish eating you off. Wow. Wow. The rejection of this guy's against God's grace results in the downfall of the entire kingdom. Verses 12 through 18, it tells us your son's going to die, your dynasty's going to be overthrown, and Israel's going to be exiled from the land. Three things. Now, now here's what I really like about these three things. Because we wonder sometimes like how, how God's punishment works. You get one that's immediate. The death of the son is immediate. He told her, as soon as you get back and cross the threshold, he's going to pass, right? So, so you get, that was verse 17. Which I just wonder... I mean, I believe as a mama, she would have she would have given this information. So I wonder if Jeroboam just just yet again, I don't know, but just yet again, has got an opportunity for grace, even at the ugliest moment, probably in life. Because because what would he have said if she said uh, prophet said he's going to die as soon as I cross threshold? Wouldn't he have asked somebody, hey, when when did he die? As soon as she crossed threshold. Dang, God's word was right yet again. Second thing, the dynasty is going to be overthrown. That happens in the next chapter. So pretty quick. 
Now, this third thing, that the, the Israel will be uh, removed from the land, that didn't happen to 2 Kings chapter 17. It's like two to three hundred years later by the Assyrians. So, 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 so we get this thing going on, and they never get out of the idolatry that they're put in. This is why it's so important not to start playing with fire. People, people wonder sometimes, like, how, how much you can, like, play with before you really begin to get. And so, you, know, you ever notice that? All of us as people. We want to know, like, how close we can get to the line before we're crossing the line. The object as a believer, as a kingdom-minded person, isn't to see how close you can get to the line without jumping over it. The object is to see how far away from the line you can get. Like, it ought to be like, the line is over there, and I'm steady moving this way, right? But we've got this wrong view where we, we want to know just how close we can get. Like, what, what crosses the line? I mean, we do it with every aspect. We do it with drugs. We do it with our health. Uh, we do it with sex or, 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 you know, whatever kind of degree you want to do. How, how much can we do before God says we're wrong, right? That, that's our idea. How much can we enjoy before we've, we've crossed this, this line? Right? The, the idea is to stay the hank away from the line, man. This, this poison that gets brought in, it, man, they suffer forever. Constantly in the recordings of First and Second Kings, we get this phrase that's made about the sins of Jeroboam because of the generations after him doing and following the exact same way. Look, look at the end of this thing from God's point of view. Because the first time I read this, I'm like, man, why did the baby have to go, right? But, but look at the mercy here, really. Verse 13. The prophet says he is the only one belonging to Jeroboam who will be buried because he's the only one in the house of Jeroboam whom in the Lord, the God of Israel, has found anything good. Now, we have to we have to get God's point of view from stuff, OK, which is hard for us. We, we, we often even believers, we fall in the trap of viewing like death as an end, which I don't know how disappointing and disheartening that could possibly be. Right. Especially if you're talking to unbelievers. Death is the end. Well, what the heck have you been wasting your life doing? If that's the end, right? But when we look at God's point of view, we, we don't know exactly what and how and all the, this this kind of stuff. We, we we know death is not the end for God, right? So, so so as he's looking at this thing and he's saying, he knows what's about to happen to all the males in this land, right? What did he say? They're going to be devoured by dogs in the cities. That's where this baby would have been, right? So so you can almost see like God's mercy in a weird way. Now I know from from our our again you got to get yourself out of your head and get into to God's view of this thing. From our head it doesn't look like it, but God's saying I, that's the only good thing in your family. Like I don't want him devoured by dogs. So I'll take him early. You guys will have a burial. The whole nation will honor him. It'll be so much better than every other male in your whole nation, right? I mean we we just get to see just a little bit. Uh, of this view from, from God's grace that still goes on. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God's eternal life through what? Through Jesus Christ. They can't get out of their trouble because they can't get a hold of who he is, right? We ought to be seeking God for who he is. If we do, here's what Matthew 5.6 says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I love that. Because what does filled mean? Satisfied. Let's see if it works. I don't know if it'll work. We didn't plan this, right? You've had all your drink, all your queso, all your chips, all your food. Waiter comes back. What do they ask? Is there anything else I can bring you? What do you respond? Because I'm full. Fully satisfied. Right? Could, could, could you imagine if we understood exactly what God meant by this verse? Because I'm not going to fill you up halfway. I'm going to fully satisfy you. Like fully, com- completely satisfied. This, this, this is the way to the, to the good life. Now, now, we've been looking at this, this northern tribe and how they messed up. What about the southern tribe? See, this chapter's got, got two different groups, and we'll, we'll fly through this, this second part of it. But the, the second part goes back to the southern tribe, and, and I kind of get this, this feeling when you original read it. You're like, all right, the southern kingdom, like they still got the temple. They still got priests. 
they they still doing things God's way. They've got the, the area to worship. They, they've been blessed by God. They've still got the lineage of, of David and, and Solomon's family. I mean, things are going great on the southern side, right? What did we get on verses 21 through 28? The exact opposite. I mean, when you really think about it, it sucks, man. I mean, it really does. That Now, the first time we get a hold of, of, of Rehoboam, which is the son of Solomon, was chapter 12. You remember the, the very first thing we were introduced when he met? He takes over as king, but he's a young guy. So he's, he's wise enough to know that people are complaining and wanting this. So what does he do? He goes to the, the elders. He says, hey, what should I do? The elders say, lighten up, man. Your dad was real rough. He taxed us real heavy. He made us work hard. It'd be good to get a little bit of grace and the people will respect you for it. As a young little brat, what does he decide to do? I'm going to go to my young friends and see what they think about it because I want to be cool. You know, wise people aren't cool. So I go talk to my cool friends. What does his friends tell him? Drop the hammer, man. They thought your dad was rough. You show them how rough life can really be. The idiot follows who? Drops the hammer. What happens? Ten tribes gone. Peace. We told you we was out, right? That's what starts the division of all this stuff. So this guy's already an idiot. I mean, you're just being honest. He's already like an idiot on this book's things right here, right? So so look at what happens. The very first mistake, I guess you could say, he makes, or lesson we get, I guess, 21 through 28 with Rehoboam in the south. Rehoboam, he failed to treasure what he had. Again, my first idea was all the stuff that he still had. He's got the temple, he's got all the gold, he's got all the money, he's got the inheritance, he's got the elders, he's got everything. And verse 21 even reminds us, the city the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel in which to put his name. I mean, this is supposed to be a blessed and great place. He's got the Levites, he doesn't have to have any man-made, made-up worship leaders. He's got all the right conditions but he doesn't treasure what he has. See, this is a lesson for those on the other end. Maybe that's why they're both in the same chapter. One chapter, you got a guy who lost a lot, but still got a lot, really, when you think about it, and he fails. You're like, yeah, but if, if God, because here's the game we play. Tell me if I'm wrong. We play the game that if God would only bless me, I would be a better person. Don't we play that game? If God would just give me this, I'd be a better believer. If God would do this, I'd be a better follower. Well, God has blessed this guy beyond all measure. He's got all the right conditions. What? Here's the word. The better circumstances don't lead to a godly reign. They don't. You can have all the right stuff and not have God. All the right stuff and not have God. Instead, look at what it says. He wants to introduce more. Verse 23. They also set up for themselves high places. They also had a sacred stones of the Asher poles and on uh, every high hill and under every spreading tree. You know, we mess up a lot. We always want to add to something. Am I right? Let me give you an illustration because I know you do better illustrations because you like me, right? You ever see these young teenagers now? I know none of the rest of us were never like this, right? Young teenagers now, they get a V. They do one thing to it. They do another thing to it. They get that third thing done. And somebody finally says, man, it's a good looking truck you got there. You think you'd stop. What do they do? Do another thing and another thing. So they got 55 million different color chrome stickers all over the thing. They got, they got 45 different shades of tint on all the windshields. 
They got wires hanging all on the inside because they thought it'd be cool to have 14 more speakers versus the other 14 speakers that were already great, right? They always want to add to it until finally what happens? It don't look good no more. Ain't nobody. Well, that's just dumb in itself, but they, 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 they don't have anybody telling them it looks good because it doesn't look good anymore. Now, I fell in that trap just for a little while. And, and, and all honesty, my, my boy Duke back there is who got me out of it. He'd do like one or two things to every truck. Tint the windows, lift kit, rims, tires. Yeah, man, that's a good looking truck. You stop then. Stop. You save money. You don't have to redo nothing. Right? Me, I wanted 75 different exhausts because I wanted to make sure it sounded perfect. How much money I've wasted on stupid vehicles. Right? No, when you get it good, you stop. These people are just like dumb teenagers today. They want to keep adding to it. Adding to it. Oh, God, you've got this? Well, let me add the astropoles. You've got this? Let me add the high places. You've got this? Let me add my way. The more you add to God, the less value God has. We get that? You can't add value to God because anything you add to God decreases the value. Now, I hate to say that way. Maybe that's a need to find a rewording for that because we can't actually take away value from God. You understand it? Make that clear. I don't want anybody writing down in their notes. We take away the value of God. No, please don't write that down. But we get what I'm saying with it. We understand the, the, the meaning. That's important, man. We always want to add to it. The circumstances don't make us the decisions. do. You can write that part down. That's good. All right? The circumstances don't make us our decisions. It's not our circumstances that make us who we are. It's the decisions we make. Rehoboam started out great. And then it stopped. He didn't treasure what God had blessed him with so much. So and you could ask this, was it, was it a result of just a lack of knowledge? Not if you read, remember, Chronicles mimics Kings. Second Chronicles 12.1. After Rehoboam's position as king was established and he had become strong, important, he and all Israel with him abandoned the law of the Lord. Notice it's a choice. It's after he's established the kingdom. It's after he had become strong. He chose to depart from the way of the Lord, right? You ever notice kids as they begin to age, like little kids, right? They start walking on them. They don't want you to hold on no more. Takes you seven hours to walk through Walmart because they want to walk on their own, right? I got it. That's favorite. I got it, right? Mine, right? I, I can do it. We're like little kids when it comes to our walk with God sometimes. It's after we become strong. Oh, I'm spiritually stable. Oh, I, I'm this, that we drop guard. And we think we can do something on our own. I, I love that part of that verse, for, at least for the meaning. I don't like what happens. But but I love the meaning. It's after they became strong and had everything they had, then they abandoned the law of God. It, it, it's like, and here's the saddest part, at least in in, in our current state of, of religion, right? We get people saved. We get them in the church. Six months later, where'd they go? Right back home. Right? You, do you guys remember, I was thinking about this the other day, do you guys re- remember 9-11, like the Sunday after? At least on the new, man, churches were flooded. People were all over the world talking about unity and God and grace and, and, and pulling back to, to the word of God and getting things back the way they were supposed to be. What did it last? Four weeks? I don't even know if it lasted a month, maybe three weeks. Right? Because it's after we get that appearance of strength, we depart from God. We do it all the time. Man. We do it in our marriages. Oh, I need counseling. So we go to counseling for like six sessions. Things are great. Nah, we don't need counseling anymore. Things are wonderful. No, because things weren't wonderful when you weren't doing it, right? We, we read the word of God 
And things start getting better. So what do we do? Ah, I quit reading the word of God. I already got all the good out of it. Right? We, we quit. It's a choice, man. Here, here's another thing he does. He abandoned what the verse said. He abandoned the law of, of God. Here's what God had instructed kings. Deuteronomy chapter 17, 18 through 20. This was not on the screen, so you gotta actually use the Bible. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he's to write down, this is a command to kings now. So, and, and you better believe it. We know this, this is only, this is only what, the third or fourth king? So you better believe this has been passed down that far. Now you could say kings later, they may have not got it passed down, but you know it's been passed down this far, okay? And this is the rule. It says kings, when you take over. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he's to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law. Can you imagine? Like that's your first job, right? You take over, you're the king. What do you have to do? You got a copy. Hold on. Let me make sure you get a, a picture of it. Oh. You got a copy that much. Cause that's, that's the original law, right? You see how small the print is in my Bible. Cause I still got good eyes, right? <laughs> so you got a print this much handwritten on your own. You know why God commands that? You not remember great things when you write them down. Huh? Note takers, I'm telling you, am I right? It took me a while to learn that now. I was a poor note taker for a long time. But you write stuff down, you remember it. It clicks in your brain a little bit better. So that's what it tells them. When you take the throne, I want you to write all this down, copy it all down, taken from the priests who are Levites, so you get it from the right source. Right? Don't be taking it from anybody. Take it from the right source. It is to be with him, and he's to read it all the days of his life. Now, these guys are awesome. Now, something I do, some of you guys know it, some of you don't. One of, one of my things after I get back from taking the kids to school, I come home. Very first thing I do is I read the chapter for the week. You know, that, that, that's just a given. That, that, that starts it right there. Boom. I'm reading like, okay, so Monday it'll be chapter 15. We're finishing 14. Right? I probably read 15 and 16. So I think we'll do as good. But anyway, long, long story short, everything. These guys, they read the entire law every day, right? They kept it with them every day. Now, now excluding your little technology phone, how often do you touch your Bible with you every day? Some of us can say every day. Some of us, what? Well, it sits on the shelf until Sunday morning. Then we all yell at the kids to go find them so that we can load up in the car and get to church on time. Toting our Bible so that we look holy. There goes back to mask and images, right? Huh? I want him to be with him. I want him to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn. Here's the purpose. God, God didn't give us anything without a purpose. Here's the purpose. I want him to learn to revere Yahweh his God and follow carefully all the laws and decrees. Why is it so important? Because I want him to read it every day and write it down. I want him to look at it because it's important that he knows every part of it. And not only that he knows it, go back to obedience so that he follows it. Now, you can't follow if you don't know, by the way. So both play a part. Okay, you got to know it to follow. And not consider himself better than it. Oh, look at this. Wow. Because what did manly kings start to do? What did they start to do with Solomon? Come on. I'm higher than all you guys, right? They get higher and higher and higher till Isaiah, right? Consider himself better than his brothers and turn from the law and to the right and to the left. Man, God knew what was going to happen, did he not? But the sad part is God knew what was going to happen and still warned us and it still happened. But that's how, how thick-headed we are. Then he said his descendants will reign a long time over the, if, if he does this thing, right? He, he's the second, I guess you could say really second generation since David because it was David's son Solomon. And, and so this is David's grandson. So second generation. And he's already forgetting and getting ignorant of the law. Circumstances can be good, they can be bad, and they can change, but they don't make us who we are. We become who we choose to be. And this guy chooses not so. 
Most circumstances in all honesty are beyond our control anyway, so I'm, I'm glad circumstances don't make us. We're not the product of circumstances. We're the, we're the, or the victim of circumstances. I know we play that card too. We're, we're what we choose to be. And the choice is Rehoboam makes. He leads Judah into sin. And then God steps in. I, I love, now God's been stepping in for chapters with all these kings, right? What, what does the verse tell us? Uh, right around 26. In the fifth year of Rehoboam's reign, God said, fifth year? Do you see how fast this decline happened? Now, remember what we had said back when Solomon had gathered all the gold and the silver, right? Silver became so worthless. What was it compared to? Stones on the ground, right? You guys just copy off the 12-year-old if you don't get it, right? Stones on the ground is all the silver's worth. It's like dirt. Five years later, five years now, we had said if things kept going for, for Solomon the way they were with people bringing in the tax money and all this stuff, that he could never outspend what he was getting. But five years later, this, this guy from Egypt comes in. And you can read about this in Chronicles chapter 12 if you want to get more. Also, here's a cool note for you note takers. This, not that we need this, but I love when scripture does this. This, this is one of those things that is actually proven in archaeology. So you, you can you can go Google this one instead of reading Second Chronicles chapter twelve if you want, and you get the same evidence of this king from Egypt coming in and, and taking stuff out of the temple and and all this stuff. So that's just just a little extra information for you guys who like that. Verse twenty six: The king of Egypt he carries away all the treasures of the temple. Man, you see how? Can you imagine? Can you imagine the people who had been there and saw this great temple? We know how beautiful it was. We know all the stuff it had, and they're just watching these Egyptians taking everything out of it including, it mentions these 300 gold shields that Solomon had made. Millions of dollars, we calculated it. I can't remember what it was. Anybody remember 30 to 60 million, something like that, something crazy. Millions of dollars of gold shields walking around, right? These shields used by the royal guard when he was getting escorted to to the temple, so they're really just for show anyway. We talked about that because a gold shield would be useless in in real fight. But here's what happens. Verse 27, the show's got to go on, right? You ever heard that phrase, the show must go on? Don't we do that with our emotions and stuff? We, we do it. Let's get real. We do it. We do it before we come into church. We yelling at the kids, cussing, having a stern. We yelling at the wife. The wife's yelling at us. Everybody's going to kill everybody at 1230 when church gets out. But at 11, right? Or 1030, whatever time we start, right before church starts, what do we do? Hold your Bible and hold hands, guys. Let's skip into church. Let's fool everybody. <laughs> right? The minute you get in the car. Oh, we're going to pick up where we left off. Uh, guys, like, I gave you so much grace because you're supposed to get changed while you're in the church service and you didn't change, right? The show must, here's what I mean by the show must go on. The ceremony continues. What does verse 27 say? It says it so nonchalantly, too. That's what really blows my mind on verse 27. 27 says, King Roboam, he made some bronze shields to replace them. I read that and I'm like, what? Like, like I, I'm all about like first or last little Rocky Ricky Bobby syndrome for you, right? But these guys went from first to, to third. They didn't even get a second place, you know, second silver, right? Silver's just gone. They're going straight to bronze. They said that the, the value of these shields would only be a couple thousand dollars. You buy bronze by the pound. You buy gold by the ounce. You see the difference here? You, you see how crazy th- th- this is getting? Can you imagine that sight, though? And, and here's what really cracks me up on this. So not only do you have a cheap imitation of the real thing, 
You, you know, people would have lined up to watch these gold shields and the shine as, as they walked toward the temple and been all excited about what's going. These cheap substitutes, I don't think they shine that much. I don't think they had so much going for them. And I just wonder how often we substitute the very thing of value for a cheap replacement. Hmm? And, and don't miss this. The, the whole the whole thing of this, you talking about I, I like symbolism, God likes symbolism too. The whole thing of this is representing the spiritual state of the people. They had a real thing with God, but the glory of God is gone. And what they're left with is an imitation of the real thing. That's what's really taking place. And, and picture this. The king's still going to the temple to worship while idol worship's going on. So we already know this is fake, right? He's got the form, but he's got no substance. Everything looks right on the outside, but it's empty on the inside. He's got the ritual with no true worship. And here's the saddest thing of all. Verse 28. Talk about decline. Uh, whenever the king entered the Lord's temple, the guards would carry these shields, the bronze ones now because the gold ones are gone, and then they would take them back to the armory. Do you remember where the gold shields were? I know it was a couple of chapters ago. Where'd they go? Hanging on the wall. They're just hanging up for everybody to see. Right? Because something that's valuable, you, you hang it up for everybody to see. If you go back and read that stuff, were they guarded over? No, the answer is no. Did they have like a, a security system on them, little laser beams crossing in case somebody tried to steal them? Mm-mm. Why? No, no, they're worth a lot. $60 million. Don't listen to the 12-year-old on that one. Why, why didn't they guard them? They got rest from all the injuries, what Scripture said. Scripture said they were so bad, so powerful, so mighty, that nobody dared come up in their house and mess with them. I, I don't have a lot of authority like that, but I got authority like that in Ridgeville. We first started dating. I'd leave my truck running when I ran into the gas station. Windows down, unlocked, everything. Crystal, what are you doing? Ain't nobody taking that truck, baby. Right? We in Ridgeville. Now, we get to Somerville. We might have the locked doors and rolled the windows up. But in Ridgeville, everybody know what I'm driving, right? <laughs> so, so I got a little bit of authority. These guys had authority like that over all the land. They ain't had to lock up 60 million. I didn't handle $60 million in the truck either. $60 million in gold shields hanging on the wall. And they weren't worried about nobody coming to get them. They get so far gone from God that now they've got a couple thousand dollars worth of bronze shields. They use them for the ceremony real fast. And look, the king don't even get escorted. I don't know if you catch this. The king don't even get escorted out of the temple. It's once he gets to the temple that they tell him what? Take these shields and go get them in the armory and lock them up. You notice how, how depressed we get when we start losing a little bit? How greedy and grungy we get? Like we try to hold on. And then we wonder like why we're that way. It's like the less we get, the more we, we tighten up so nobody can get it, right? Is that, is that really the heart of God? No, it's a cheap imitation and foolishness. Rehoboam forfeited true worship with God. He, he placed more faith in the rituals than he did in God. He placed more faith in the methods than the source of the blessing. He placed more faith in the healing than he did in the healer. This is what's happening. This is what's going on. What, you ask, what's the root of this? Second Chronicles chapter 12, verse 14. Here's the root of his problem. He did evil because he had not set his heart on seeking the Lord. We talked about decisions, not circumstances. You got to make a decision to seek the Lord. That's it. Nobody can make you your circumstance. I would love to say circumstances can force you, but they can't. Like from outside view, sometimes we wonder how they don't. But in reality, like you have to, you have to decide to seek the Lord or not. Two times in Rehoboam's life, he listened to the Lord. Once was was uh, in chapter 12, verse 24, when the Lord said, don't fight him. This is going to be my doing. So when he was getting his kingdom, right, he obeyed and he went home. And the second time is, is 
when Egypt threatened to destroy Jerusalem and Second Chronicles chapter 12, he humbled himself and, and, and he said, OK, I know I can't can't win. I can't. Do it. That's the only only two times. Now, we're writing a story about your life. Would you only want two times that are recorded where you actually obeyed God? His problem, it says, was that he didn't seek our God. We need to avoid this. We need to treasure. Have we? Maybe let's end with some questions. Have we treasured what God has given us? Do we even know what God's given us? We talk about being in this great country and all the, the food and the stuff. Forget the food and stuff. you got freedom to worship. That in itself is a gift compared to most places. Right? You've got the fear of no persecution. And, and I'm about sick and tired of all you believers, by the way. While, while I'm right here, let me pause for a minute. Now, I'm sick and tired of y'all being worried about some dumb election and thinking your rights as believers are going to be taken away. They cannot take your right as a believer away. They can set up laws. They can change ordinances, but they can't take your right to have a belief in a relationship with God. Right? This isn't my kingdom. It's not. So I don't care what they do with it. Okay? So so quit that quit that attitude, all right? Oh, we're not ever going to be able to worship again. Have y'all at home right now, but you're not worshiping, okay? Let's just be honest about them, okay? You look at every opportunity you can to get out of coming anyway, right? It's a nice environment that God's given us to grow our faith. We ought to cherish it. What about this one? Have we abandoned the word of God? Some of you think, no, uh-uh. How often do you read it then? How often do you read it? We had a lady Wednesday night, for those of you who weren't here, that stood up and, well, I guess I'm going to give it away when I say blind. <laughs> I was going to use it. She, she stood up and she thought about having a passion for reading the word of God. And then it was taken away. Obviously, when you lose your eyesight, you can't read. So she's got tapes. And she's read scripture so much that like when she hears it in the tape, she knows what's coming next. Can you say that? you got a long ride to work. What do you listen to? We've got no excuse in our day and time for not filling ourselves with the Word of God. I mean, we really don't. We talk about technology being evil. I ain't met an evil computer yet. I had. I got like five of them at the house. None of them bite me. None of them throw things at me. None of them have taken anything from me. I mean, they're, they're relatively nice devices. I mean, they are. They're really kind. They sit. They listen better than the kids. They don't make a mess. I mean, there's great stuff going on with these computers, right? The evil or the lack of evil is what we choose to do with them. You can do some great things with technology. Huh? Listen to the word of God while you're right. Listen to, I mean, there's so, so much opportunity, man. Have we been where God, do you have an interest in it? Do you have an interest in knowing it, not just knowing about it? Better yet, do you believe it? Back to what I had started this whole thing with, with, with him. Have we forfeited the true worship of God? When you come to church, you just go through the motions. Did some of the things we say today describe you and your family before you walk in? Is your heart not there? Is your heart there? Here's the thing we need to understand. Pursuing God, whether we want it to or not, pursuing God doesn't really happen naturally. It doesn't. It's a choice we have to make. We have to choose to set our hearts on seeking him. We have to decide to honor him and follow. Now, the more you make that decision, it then becomes natural. Like you develop a passion for it. But it's not natural in the beginning, Right? We're the product. We're not the products of this stuff. We need to decide to do this stuff. Here, here's the last thing I want to show us. Just because it's so important to learn past six. Verse 31. Verse 31. Look at it. It should be on the screen, right? Rehoboam rested with his fathers. I don't know if he really rested, to be honest. All the verses saying that he died. He's buried with his fathers in the city of David. His mother's name, Naamah the Ammonite. Well, why is that important? Why would you end a whole chapter and then throw in like this extra, this one little extra sentence? Here's what I think the writer 
is trying to tell us. This all started with a gradual decline when Solomon decided to start marrying people he wasn't supposed to marry. Now, do you see the importance of being with who you're supposed to be with, of doing what you're supposed to do, of following God's rules, God's way? Because when we don't, even even one little thing like marrying the wrong person or, or, or following the wrong, whatever it is, right? It's only one step that leads to destruction. And, and here's what happens. Last visual, I promise. We're, we're on a hill. You know, the more you weigh, the faster you can roll down that hill, right? You take little Paxton over there and you try to roll him down the hill. And then we take Brian and roll him down the hill. Brian will run over Paxton and pass him. You know what I'm saying? Which would be good because he'll knock down all the trees and your, the rest of your roll will be good, right? It's, what's the difference? Brian's not sensitive. You can say the word. What's the difference? His weight. Man, they think you're fat, Brian. Gee, <laughs> it's the weight. Now, now, here's what happens. We take one step down the hill. Talking about destruction of sin. And then we take another step and another step. And another. The more weight you get onto the destruction, what happens? You go faster down that hill. You see what I'm saying? But it starts with just one cheeseburger. It does. It starts with just one thing. And then you get faster and faster and faster. All right, let's pray. Father God, we love you so much. I thank you for this morning, God. God, I, I personally, Lord, thank you that we're getting closer to Elijah. <laughs> In chapter 17, we're getting through some of these rough chapters. But God, I, I don't want, I don't want these chapters, Lord, to be, to be overlooked. And I don't think you do either, Lord. Lord, you, you sought enough to write the word. And ask God, you the north are having a lot of stuff, Lord God. God, you take it all. Open our eyes where we've been approaching you the wrong way with the wrong. Help us to seek you. Intentionally seek you and not the glories of this world. For it's in your great name we pray. Amen.